Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 82. My name's Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with Jack Resider, the creator of Darknet Diaries. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. My guest today needs no introduction. He is the host of Darknet Diaries, the most popular cybersecurity podcast out there, which also ranks as one of the more popular podcasts on the internet at large. True stories from the dark side of the internet. A seasoned cybersecurity practitioner and a voice recognized by many, it is absolutely my honor to be introducing Jack Resider. Thanks so much for being with us on the show today, Jack. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I'd love to hear people's genesis story. Can you share with us how you first got interested in technology and how that became a career in cybersecurity? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, My grandma, which I think she was very advanced for doing, got a computer in her house. It was the, uh, I think our first computer was Apple IIe. And that one was fun, you know, it was kind of cool to to tool around with. But but then she got an Intel-based computer. And... At first, it was just like DOS. We didn't even have Windows. <laughs> then we got Windows, and I was like, wow, this is cool. And then I think somewhere in like Windows 95, no, I, th- I think I was getting online back at Windows 3.1, but it was the Windows 95 that AOL came out, and this changed the whole game. Like, it wasn't a funny toy or a, or a silly thing anymore. It was like, wow, I have the internet here, and I can talk with people and connect to places. And that is when I fell in love with technology and computers. And I have not fallen out of love since. It's been, it's been my true love ever since I was young and stuck with it because it's just so amazing. There's always like another marvelous thing that's happening in technology. And it's amazing to just connect with other people. I, yeah, that's, that's how it started was chat rooms was just so, so phenomenal to me. And from there, I went and I got my computer engineering degree and I studied all, you know, a bunch of different programming languages and operating systems. and like everything that you need to know about computers. And then um, and then I couldn't get a job anywhere <laughs> with that degree. But it wasn't until I got like a certification in Cisco that I was able to get a job in the NOC. And then I was able to keep, you know, going up in there until I got a security engineering position. And uh, that's when I finally landed in security. And that's when I realized, wow, this is where I need to be. Because security is kind of like, all the technology comes in into focus in security. You need to know a little bit about this operating system and how the boot up process works and how this programming language works and who's the system admin here and how do they work and all this privileges and stuff like this. 
And so it all comes into focus. And that's where I felt like most comfortable because of that degree, I think, taught me a little bit about everything. So yeah, that's where I felt at home. And I was just very happy to be in security after that. Oh, very cool. And I've heard some really great stories about those early bulletin boards and the type of community that still existed in those early days of the internet. I think we've lost that a little bit along the way. Yeah, it was very different. So normally when I interview someone, I start by looking up their job history on LinkedIn and ask some questions around that. And when I was looking at yours, it was hard to glean much because most of the names were redacted. I'm curious about your choice to have things on lockdown like this. I totally get trying to stay anonymous on the internet, but then on the other hand, you're such a public figure. What's the reasoning there? Yeah, I mean, digital privacy is a big thing of mine. I really, it's not just that. I, I keep my photo off the internet. I keep my location, all the personal details. So I think, you know, what I like is there is a private and a public life, right? So my public life is very, you know, specific what I share. And then my private life is, well, everything's exposed. It's really difficult to keep your private life private because you have to share things with your doctor or your family or, or just have all this access to, the, to your world. And I don't want that access to my world to be out there for everyone to see. I, I like being able to go and, you know, go around in public without people recognizing me. And then I can put, the, put, the, put it on when I want, right? I can take it off and put it on the, the, the notoriety. And I think that is such a, a powerful thing to have. I really love having that ability to, to have my privacy because it, I am very widely known uh, online and in, in the tech community. So I think, it, I, think I would be stopped quite a bit like if i'm eating dinner or something like there's jack let's go take his photo no gosh leave me alone i'm busy <laughs> so you know if i fall down uh, walking across the street and somebody's like oh look at jack is drunk he fell down and they're snapping photos and putting that online i don't want that so nobody knows where i live or who i am or any of that and that's great keep it that way and so yeah this is why i redact a lot of things on linkedin I talk about like what job title I had and what duties I did, but not which city or which state or which company or any of this stuff. Yeah, that must be a very interesting balance to try and strike having such a public persona and then your private life. Hey, I think what was interesting is starting from scratch, right? You have, no, you have no friends or family or anybody who can like vouch for you to be like, yeah, this is a good, this is a good guy. Everyone should listen to him, right? You, you got, you're starting from like, okay, I'm going to start from a nobody here on purpose and try to build up from there um, because I, I want this private and public to be separate. And so my, it is very strange when people in my private life are like, what do you do? And I'm like, uh, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the people in my public life are like, where do you live? Oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is a very interesting balance to strike, but I think I've gotten good at it over time. So you worked as a network security engineer for a little over 10 years. What was your working life like? Did you really enjoy the work as a technical engineer or did you kind of feel stuck in the, the corporate machine? No, I loved it. And uh, the corporate machine had like a plan for me. They're like, okay, you're going to start out as a, as a network operation technician and then you're going to go senior network operation technician. And then you can go to, you know, engineer and then senior engineer and then architect and SME. And I was like, oh, this is great. You got my next 10 years planned for me. So, yeah, I did spend 10 years going through all these steps because that's what they had figured out for you. And so it was wonderful to get additional training and get promotions and keep that gear moving. And to me, that's where I think that, you know, my spirit worked well is to have that, have those gears turning to keep working on that next promotion, keep challenging my mind. Anytime I got into a place where it was like, 
no, I think I know all this. <laughs> then I'd be asking my boss, can I have more responsibility? Can I have more complex things to do? Because um, I didn't want to just settle. I wanted to keep working hard on something. So what I loved about network security engineering was that it was always a challenge and it was very difficult to do all the work, right? Because you, you're, given, you're given a task that you're like, okay, this is not working. How do you solve it? Well, I just do the thing I did last time. Well, that didn't work. Okay, we'll do, I got another idea. Okay, try this. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, well, we'll Google it. Google doesn't know. Well, how in the world am I going to solve this now, right? All my ideas are out. My Google doesn't know. Maybe I'll call, you know, tech support and see if they know. And they don't know. So now I'm really screwed. <laughs> so it's really wild. And, and you never know which system it's on, too. Is it the database? Is it the front end, the back end? Is it the network? Is it the DNS? Is it all? It's always DNS, but... <laughs> you got to go all around the horn. So it was really fun to, to get familiar with all these places, to, to get familiar with how to troubleshoot and to sort things out. And, and yeah, it, I, I really found it fun. It was, it was a, a puzzling, challenging time that I just really enjoyed. And what I did most of the time was um, firewall um, configuration, lockdown on the perimeter, admin, that sort of thing, but then also reviewing the logs on the firewall and looking for threats in there or problems in there troubleshooting network issues, looking at other security devices, right? Like uh, intrusion detection systems and WAFs and SIMs. A, a never-ending list of things to learn and problems to solve, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because you, you never know where your line is of like, okay, here's my domain, and then that, that is someone else's domain over there, right? So you're, you're talking about identity, right? Is identity on the security team or is it on like the you know, network admin team? Or the, or the system admin team. So who's handling users? <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, it sounds like it could be a security thing. We got passwords involved and stuff like that. So uh, you, you kind of have to go beyond your border to show, like, here's where I think the problem is, and then give that to the other team who thinks that it's their server. But if you, if you just say, hey, there's a problem with something here, they might be like, well, I don't think so. I think it's your problem. So you, you kind of have to go. It's, I always found that interesting of go beyond the line and learn their system just even the littlest bit so that you can help the, help the troubleshoot this better. And so I, I found a lot of fun just troubleshooting other devices and stuff as well. Very cool. And then somewhere near the end of your tenure as an active uh, network security engineer, you got the idea to start a podcast. What inspired you to do that? Oh, man, there's like probably a thousand things that inspired me to start a podcast. <laughs> I, I really loved listening to podcasts. This is American Life, Serial, Radiolab. And I was like, man, these are great. But then I was also listening to all these security podcasts where they're interviewing tech experts and going over the news. And, I'm, and, and every now and then we'd see these big stories of like North Korea hacking into Sony or something. And you're like, well, that's, that's a very fascinating, crazy with lots of twists. What's going on here? Like I could see you taking, I could see somebody taking this great, great security news story but then adding all the drama in that and the production and the music and then taking us through the whole experience. And, I, and so I reached out to a few podcasters. I was like, hey, can you make this? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so nobody saw my vision and I was really frustrated because I wanted to hear this. I think I listened to Kevin Mitnick's uh, audiobook, um, Ghost in the Wires. And I was like, this is, this is, the story. This is what I'm talking about. Just a, a high excitement story twists and turns like he, he's a master storyteller and so i was like if no one's going to do this 
I got to do it myself. This sucks. <laughs> so I spent like uh, probably three months reading books on storytelling and audio journalism and all this kind of stuff to try to figure out what to do here and um, studied all, from a lot of and you know inspiring people and gave it a shot and people liked it right away. So that was kind of the, the wind beneath my wings is that when people liked it and I was like, well, I must be on the right track. Oh, that's a lovely open source kind of attitude. You know, you want to see something in the world, nobody's doing it, so you go and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I am the you know the the number one listener because <laughs> I get to listen myself, and I'm excited when I hear it, and I'm like, yeah, this is a good story, and I I'm like just as much of a fan of it than everyone else because I'm making it for myself first and foremost. I think. So for the first forty episodes or so, you were the only person working on the show. You were the writer, the producer, editor, and anything else that needed to get done. I regularly listened to your show, but in preparation for this interview, I went all the way back and listened to some of the earliest episodes and was really impressed with the quality. How do you look back on those early episodes, and what was that learning process like? I was really trying to figure out my voice early on, so I didn't. I wanted to sound like Rami Malek and Mr. Robot, you know, this, like, dead monotone <laughs> i thought that was a great narration voice and i <laughs> and i asked someone like how do i get this and they're like oh you gotta <laughs> that guy's just got insomnia <laughs> and i was like oh shoot i gotta stay up to like 3 a.m to like try to get that voice and i did and that was an awful idea <laughs> so this is what i was doing i was playing around with different voices trying to find the style i didn't like the style at first i was looking for my style i eventually tried on like 30 voices but then landed back on my voice but it was really fun to explore all these different styles and methods of creating this audio experience, right? So I, not only was the voice different, but the writing was different in certain times to write like other people or to sound design like other people or to edit like other people. And I was really trying to experiment with all these elements to find my style. And um, yeah, I think I eventually did after 30, 40, 50 episodes. Um, and I was felt like, okay, now, now we're finally like getting to the vision I wanted, even though it probably was very different than what I initially thought. But yeah, it was, it was quite a ex learning experience. And uh, I don't, yeah, I, I, I feel like I may have lucked out because there's a lot of artistic stuff in there, right? Like I can't right. change my voice. People always comment, oh, I like your voice. It's good voice. Like I, 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 I can't do anything about that. That's just what I was born with. So I lucked out in that way. And I, I suppose I lucked out with just the, the art of it. The storytelling art, I, I tried to teach other people how to do this, but they don't quite get it. And uh, the crafting of, of, you know, music in there and just get, get, bring in the whole universe. Because you, you put in like visual art as well. Now it's like you've developed this universe of like, come on in to this world. And there's like a whole experience with it. And yeah, that took a lot of trial and error. I think at first there was a totally different art style. Yeah, it was a, a different art style at first. And I had to change it up because I was thinking something better now. And yeah, there's a lot of, a uh, lot of, I, I guess, trial and error at the beginning. You said you were pretty well received right out of the gate. Was there something that kicked off the growth or was it, you know, did you have a big listenership that just grew in a linear fashion from the beginning? Okay. So do you remember as a podcaster, the first time your friends and f like somebody liked your show that wasn't your friends and family? Yes, very much. <laughs> that's that. That's that initial receiving. When I yeah. it was it was the first week of launch, and somebody came up to me at a conference and said, "I have listened to every single one of your episodes, and I cannot wait for the next one." And that's when I knew 
oh my gosh, I've got something special here. So that's the early, like, just excitement of it all. Having that, just having a total stranger find you. Like, that must have meant that my friends and family shared it. And it, or it went online or someone somewhere shared it in a way that it got around to people I don't know. And then those people are, are oh, it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, I, I remember exactly where I was and who said it. And I'm still friends with them. And it's just great to, um, to have that early, like, push of, yeah, you're going in the right direction. Now I don't feel like I need any validation. I've, got, I've kind of hit all my goals. And so it's not... It's not important to me what other people think of it. I get my value of of the show and myself just from inside. So I really try to be immune to all outside forces of hey, you won this award or hey, your show really sucks. This is what are you what are you 14? You don't know what anything about cybersecurity. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, all this is I'm, I'm impervious to all this. I want to stay right down the course because if I if I start getting on one side of like look how good because of this and that then I'm going to also be on that, oh, look how awful because of this and that. And so I really try to keep both of these things off. Like, like I look at it, I read it. It's, it's not like I ignore it, but I don't internalize it. I, I apply it to the show, not to me, right? So it's the show that you like. It's the show that you don't like. I'm not involved with this, even though I'm the one who makes it, right? So that's just kind of the, the thought process I have in my head now of, yeah, it was great to have that early validation, but now, now I don't really care for it. Yeah, I saw you post your statistics for every year, and I was looking. I think your episodes are getting uh, six hundred thousand listens each now. I think you're you're pretty safe from criticism at this point. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've I've blown past every goal I've ever set for myself, right? So it's kind of like, okay, well, everything from here is a bonus. I might as well just have fun with it. At some point, you decided to make the leap and quit your job to pursue this full time. Did you feel confident when you made that leap, or did you know have to? give it the old YOLO and, and take the leap? <laughs> I felt confident. I was, I was seeing, you know, these vignettes of just people loving it. And I'm like, if, there's, if we're at the early days and people love it this much, then I know that if I just keep on with this, it's going to catch fire in the way that I, I think it could. So there was a song that I'd play all the time in those early days by Arcade Fire called Put Your Money on Me. <laughs> and it was like, just bet it all on on me and I will I will make this a thing, right? So that was what was in my head all the time. It's just like, you can take this gamble. You're going to be great. Don't worry about it. And so I felt very confident about it. But, you know, I had to put some, I had to put some safeguards in place of like, okay, I'll quit my job, but is this insane? So, all right. So after three months, if I don't start making money off this thing or if it doesn't grow in the way I want, then I should probably start applying for another job. And and really, that's what happened is after three months, it was it was growing in the way I wanted, but it wasn't making the money. And so I started applying. But it was really in that fourth month of just quitting and going full time that I started to make a, enough money for ramen, right? Just enough to... Yeah, and yeah. I was like, wait, if I could... Okay, so all I need to do is grow it now. And so yeah. that's kind of what... I called him back and said, so I, I got this job somewhere. And they're, and they're like, okay, when can you start? And I was like, uh, next week. But then I was like, see, I was finally seeing that money come in. And I was like, you know what? I need to, I think I made my goal. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell them I, I can't come to work. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I think even as a startup founder, I often say that, you know, part of what makes somebody successful is kind of being dumb enough to think they can do it against yeah. all the odds. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really a lot of my attitude. It's uh, don't like, I've got action bias, right? I want 
to just try it. I've got an idea in my head. Let's get it out. Let's see how it looks when it's in front of me and not just in my head. And I just do it. I do it. I do it. I do it. And and I don't think too hard about, is this going to fail? Is What do I need to have before I get here? I just go for it. So I'm always making something. It's where I feel most happy, I think, is just creating. Yeah. And then the energy drives it forward because it comes from a place of passion and not, you know, obligation or coercion. On the About section of the Darknet Diaries website, you list journalistic integrity and public accountability amongst many other admirable qualities. One of the aspects that caught my eye was education. The show is made for technical folks and non-technical folks alike. Why is educating the public about these issues around cybersecurity important to you? Yeah, I think um, I think the first hat I put on and the first descriptor I have of myself as teacher. And I think... Um, I think but I think I don't I don't think of myself as a teacher of like, here's how to do firewall admin or here's how to hack into this thing. Right. It's it's not a step by step. It's more of a teacher of like, let me show you a world that you might not have known about. Let me show you like like you ever go on a hike with someone or, or on an adventure with someone and they show you like a new restaurant that you never knew existed. And it's now your favorite restaurant or a vista through the woods. And now you're, you're like, wow, this is the best view I've ever seen. How did you know about this, right? And that's the kind of teacher I want to I wanna embody is this, here, come with me. I'll grab my hand. I'm going to show you something. You're not going to believe this. And, and I think there's that discovery, that wonder that, I, that I'm feeding in people. And that, I just get a lot of value from that where they're just like, whoa, I had no idea that you could be paid as a penetration tester. This is like, I had no idea that hacking had so much value to it. I've been a hacker in my teenage years, but I thought that was just some dumb thing that I was doing. And I went to become a mechanic or a painter or something. And now I'm realizing I should have just kept on following my dreams. So I quit my job and I'm going to become a cybersecurity professional now. And I'm like, yeah, all right, that's great. So I, I love seeing people just find all sorts of fun, exciting things in the world of computers and technology and I guess cybersecurity and specifically. And it's just great to see them, their eyes open and their, and their whole attitude change and, their, and their, their trajectory in life change. And that's just such a fulfilling thing to, to put something artistic out in the world and put so much of yourself into it. And just really, you're just making it for yourself too. But then for other people to pick it up and vibe with it and to take it into their own life and apply it in some way that changes. Oh, it's just such a phenomenal feeling. I can't get over that every time. <laughs> And in many ways, I think of you as type of an, an ambassador for hacker culture. Based on when you started your career, I would say that we're probably of the same generation, which I think has seen massive transformation in technology, cheap storage, smartphones, the cloud, DevOps, crypto, and now AI, some really major shifts. At the same time, tech culture has really gone mainstream. And I think we're seeing that happen now with cybersecurity culture as well. Looking back over your time as a practitioner, are there any shifts in the culture of cybersecurity that stand out to you, good or bad? That are bad? Uh, no, so good or bad. Oh, good or bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, threw me, you threw bad at me first, so <laughs> my head's going there. Um, I think it's really fascinating how the generations have changed over time. And, and this is something I, I kind of was in the dark on and, until someone came to me and showed me like what's going on, right? So and my generation coming in on the internet, it was like, let's get into wares, let's do piracy, let's, um, you know, share things on IRC and just try to, uh, like, that. that's what the, uh, 
I don't know, the street, the, the cyber street kids were doing, right? We were, we were <laughs> yeah. swapping all kinds of stuff and, and uh, doing a lot of piracy. And there was the whole scene, uh, cracking and ripping and everything. And then that, that kind of set sail and it took its course. But as the next generation kind of came in, they're like, they grew up with that. So that wasn't like where the cool kids were. So they're like, what are the cool kids doing? And so that's where Anonymous kind of sprung out, right? And so now you got Anonymous that are like, hacktivists and counterculture on the internet and trying to right the wrongs of the world and using their like hacking power for all kinds of different reasons and that was like a whole generation if you grew up in like if you were a teenager in like 2008 2010 on the internet you you were and, and part of this like that's something you're never gonna get gonna forget that was such a pivotal pivotal time in your life to just be part of that mm-hmm. and and so now it's like okay there's another shift like anonymous is kind of dead they're not doing hacking things anymore every now and then you'll see a threat but you won't see really action so okay so not and and it's kind of shifted to its own meme generator i don't know what's going on with anonymous it's not even uh, an organization so nobody's even like controlling it so it, it kind of unraveled if you ask me so what are the kids doing now what what with you have all this what are you working on and this i think um this i think i cover in the episode called dirty comms where some young kids some teenagers are bringing me these information about like yeah what we're doing is we're stealing millions of dollars online (laughs) and we're stealing um, people's instagram accounts and and twitter accounts and we're using hacked databases to get access to these other people's things and these these people are just running circles around the, the the sheep of the internet, and it's crazy because we're we're so lackadaisical on what we do online, sharing so much stuff and reusing passwords. And there's this group that's just like, yeah, keep doing that because we're having a great time over here stealing all your stuff. And it's a wild time that the teenagers just don't really care on how much damage they're doing, and they just want to have as much fun as they can. It's a crazy time. So, yeah. Sim swapping is a way to get into someone's crypto account and steal like millions of dollars. And there's just so many other ways to make money online surreptitiously. It's like um, you could, you could, you know, sell Robux accounts, right? So this is the game Roblox has an in-game currency Robux that kids want to get so that they could buy stuff in the game. Well, how can we sell them this, but like make money off of it, right? So you, you get this whole like, scheming of kids growing up as teenagers get wanting robux so bad but then when they get to be like 18 or so they're like wait i think i can come up with a scam to like get people to pay me for robux when i don't actually give them because there's all these kids with 13 year olds with their mom and dad's credit cards like i could totally target them so there's this whole world of just scams that are going on and and they're scams from from just normal teenagers in america (laughs) it's not like the nigerian scammers or stuff and so it's just wild to see it so close and and so prevalent that i wouldn't have noticed because i'm not in this scene but because i make the show people are bringing me all these crazy stories my daughter's just turning 10 and she plays roblox and yeah i can already see how different her experience with the internet is since it's always been there and yeah, I think it's very fascinating for you to bring that up where these kids are just kind of out there, you know, quote unquote, hustle culture, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. And so like one of them, I think that they made was a, um, I think there was like a, a gift card checker, right? So if you get a gift card, you want to check the balance on it. So you go online to check it. But what they've done is make a fake balance checker 
so that when you enter the credit card in there, the gift card in there, then they just drain the whole thing. And then they say, oh, this has got $20 on it. And then you're like, cool. And so like, just little things like this to try to trick people with social engineering and stuff like that. And then especially make it like super common in this Robux, Roblox community where it's like, here's the gift card checker. You should check if you, you know, Christmas time, grandma's going to give you a gift card. You could get some Robux, but go here to check the balance first. Right. And through social contact on those platforms. Yeah. Interesting. So as of this recording, Darknet Diaries has published 139 different episodes. Is there any particular episode that stands out to you, something that had a real impact in the world or that you wish you could go back and redo? Hmm, that's three questions in one there. Yeah, sorry. We can strip it down if you want. (laughs) Yeah, so there was the Kick episode I did, which is uh, this chat app. It's like a phone app. Um, You could chat with people um, similar to what, Discord, Slack, um, signal, but in this and in chat and in kick there, I, I don't think there's any moderation. So lots of bad stuff is going on there right in the open, such as pedophilia. <laughs> and it's like, and if you, if you Google kick and just be like, what's the news going on with kick? It's just, it's just awful stuff. Every time police officer arrested for sharing pedophilia images or woman, you know, young lady kidnapped and taken from kick encounter (laughs) you know like it's just everything is just awful about kick every news item you ever see is just a bad news and so i'm like okay there's nobody moderating this i tried to call them i tried to you know like a hundred times i tried to contact them like hello is anybody home here what's your number who's who's you know keeping the lights on anything happening and it's just no no contact at all no interaction there's no way to connect with them and so it just gets rampant and, and it's wild. And so I was like, wait a minute, let's get this thing booted off of, like, if I can't, if I, how can I shut this thing down? Like, that was kind of my idea here. Like, this does not, this is a scourge of humanity. Let's get this thing off the internet, but I can't turn it off, right? So what are the things that I can do? Well, since it's an app on the phone, then I can tell Google, uh, or, you know, you have to download it from Google Play Store or the iPhone store. And so I was like, Google, iPhone, listen, listen, you've got to look at your terms of service. I, I have, well, I'm not going to show you the pornographic images, but you can easily find them with this link. And here's your terms of service that says this is not allowed on your platform. So please just enforce your rules. That's all I'm asking. Because I figure if I could get it kicked off there, then it would, um, it would save the day, I suppose, right? So I made a big stink and I really tried to get Google and iPhone to do it, but neither of them did anything. The app still exists there. And I don't, I wish I made a bigger impact on the world. That was the one where I tried to make an impact. So you asked me what, what episode made the biggest impact. I wanted that one too. That was, I was really crossing my fingers. Like, can I get this thing kicked out of the thing? And it's not, it's still there. So. And do you think you inadvertently helped it become more widely known by covering sure. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Tell it. <laughs> I expose. And that's, that's my problem. I think I have this ethical a conundrum of like, okay, there's this bad stuff going on in the world. If I talk about it, that's going to make it bigger. And so that's why I was like, no, I can make it bigger, but I'm going to shut it down at the same time. <laughs> this will work out. And it didn't work out. It just made it bigger. So one of the things I absolutely love about your show are the interviews you conduct to support the storytelling. 
as the popularity of the show has grown, I can only imagine the depth and breadth of people you come into contact with has also grown. Having interacted with so many different people on all sides of this thing we call cybersecurity, is there any common human elements that stand out to you? Oh, common human elements. I think we all play video games. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people get started playing video games and then getting bored with the game and then like, I really don't want to play this anymore, but maybe I can mess around with it. Maybe I can cheat in the game or break the game or do something in the game that I really don't care if I get kicked out of it. And that's where you get people pushing, going you know, beyond the borders, pushing the line, hacking things and downloading hacks and all this kind of stuff. And when you're downloading hacks, you might get hacked yourself in that process. And so then you got to undo all that. And you, it takes you into this new world of, whoa, there's a lot going on here that I can, I can totally break systems and nobody cares or knows. And I think that's a, a common thread of breaking, uh, hacking video games. That's kind of the first thing. I know my first hack was SimCity. Well, I wanted to config, make a config file change to give myself a million SIM dollars, right? And so... Uh. That was really fun. On the Darknet Diaries website, I was looking at the yearly retrospective you share, which I think is really cool. I mentioned it earlier. Love the transparency. On last year's page, you talked about a book that might materialize. Has there been any progress on that or anything you can share with us? Yeah, I um, did not get started on the book. I'm, so I've got like probably eight interviews I've done for people to do a book. And I and it took me like I, I had a book in mind since the beginning, right? Like, oh, yeah, I think what I could do is like, you know, so, a few extra new stories and then like a few of the old stories, throw it all together and like seven stories in the book. But um, it never felt right. So after a while, I it just it, there was a clarity. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I I have I know exactly what the story is. It's. It's very exciting. It's big, um, but it's kind of combines my access with my ability to tell these stories, right? So I know these people in these scenes, and I also know the law enforcement that's chasing these people in these scenes, and I know the victims who have been hit by people in these scenes. And I'm just like, wow, I have access to all these things, and nobody's really covering the story in this way. I should probably do it. And so I feel like it's kind of like imperative that I do it because... Who else has access to all this stuff? So that's why it's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. And like I said, I've interviewed quite a lot of people for it already and uh, just haven't had time to put it together, I guess. Gotcha. Okay, well, we'll be anxiously awaiting that. I'd love to get a copy when it comes out. So I guess we're we're getting close to the end here. Do you have any plans for 2024? Yeah, let's see. I haven't really mapped it out in my head, but let's do it here. So we're going to continue making the show, right? So there's once a month episodes. So we'll have 12 new episodes next year. Uh, sneak peek into what's going on there. I have. I want to cover uh, like a Chinese hacking arc, like all the stuff China. I've picked on Russia before. I've picked on some other countries, but I haven't picked on China. So why not? Let's do like two or three episodes on all the stuff China's been up to. And then I've got a lot of other little stories that I can throw in there. Then, so so that's kind of doing its thing, but I've slowed down my production schedule to give me more time to work on other stuff. And even though I think it would be great to finish that book before moving on to whatever next project, um, I do I do find myself working on journaling a lot and philosophy a lot. And I wonder if I can combine personal stories, philosophy, and podcasting into one to bring something to you in that way. And that's something I've been 
actually look thinking about a lot. So if the if there's a new project that I throw out, it's probably going to be that inter that intersection of personal journals, uh, storytelling, technology, and and yeah, in a podcast format. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to see what that looks like. The last one I have for you, which is one I ask of everybody on the show, it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? Oh, predictions. Um, I think that it's a, it's a arms race when it comes to like a lot of this technology, right? So AI, for example, is going to be used to find bugs in code and find exploits and just automatically look for stuff. And it's going to be really effective at that. But I think on the other side is, well, once we have that, we got to figure out how to battle this with a computer, right? So if a computer is just being so diligently finding all the things and then going and deeping, burrowing itself in there, let's have a computer do the opposite, which is let's find all the things and then block people from getting in there. And so it'll be, I think, more computer versus computer in the future of cybersecurity where as soon as the offensive side has this technology, the defensive side has to quickly catch up and say, no, we have a way to defend against that. And I think, um, I wish it was the other way around. I wish the defensive side is like totally adopting the AI and being like, we're going to use AI to absolutely 100% patch all the things, no question. It's going to, because it's going to be able to detect, you know, things that we don't want on the fly and just fix it right then and there and go and make changes and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I I just don't see that push. I see the push from the other end. And maybe it's just that the news stories show up because it's like, well, look at the, how AI is being misused in this hacking method or something. And I don't see it on the other side. I mean, you go you go to these conferences, like RSA conference or whatever, and they're all for ten years they've been saying they're using AI to use to defend to, <laughs> to, to you know tune their tools and stuff. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's great, but now. Is it the same AI or is or are you using this? Like, what are you, how, what were you doing 10 years ago? Because this is different now. And uh, it's interesting to see if they're able to keep up with this. Cause I think a lot of them can't. I think a lot of, a lot of what they said was AI in the past to defend was smoke and mirrors. It was, it looked like AI, but it wasn't. It was just a signature created to do this one calculation very effectively uh, if it sees this one thing, but now it's like, no, we've, we, we can you really like, this is going to take a lot more effort than just uh, t two programmers with some fancy idea of what AI looks like, you know, six, seven years ago. Now you're going to need a whole team of 20 research and developers just to create a new way to use AI in your tool, like specifically for your tool. And, and I don't know if that's how they're doing it. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I know the defensers are doing this, but it would be nice if they were ahead of the curve when it comes to the armed race. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. My last guest, a fellow named John DiMaggio, had sort of brought up a similar concern where he, he saw the bad guys sort of way out ahead with AI. And his concern was that, you know, given the exponential nature of things, they could get far enough ahead that we can't catch up. Yeah, I agree. So what, what is that called? The technology's supremacy or something like that? where Somebody just has the technology way before everyone else and can just own everything. Like if quantum computing can crack a, you know, all the encryption suddenly one day, well, how long until somebody takes a quantum computer and says, we're going to use it to create an encryption that's a quantum computer can't crack? 
and that might take a long time. And that's another thing that I get worried about is, is, is are we future-proofing our technology to be withstanding a quantum computer cracking all this stuff, right? And, and that I don't think we are, right? So if you're, if you're saying, no, this is fine, it's encrypted, and it's out there in the world, but it's encrypted, it's okay. Yeah, until it's, that encryption gets broken, then all of a sudden everything you have is, is weak and exposed. And so how do, we, how do we look into, well, let's store it in a way that a quantum computer can't crack, right? So now we're talking about local storage or something else. Like, like don't put it on the internet because, it, I, yeah, I, I get worried about that. So future-proofing for those scenarios, I think, is very important. Awesome. Well, Jack, this was a real honor to have you on the show, and I appreciate your time. I know you're probably a very busy fellow, so thanks very much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.